says, get that India, big boy. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Tip Sheet Podcast. As always, I'm your host, John, also known as 4020. Joining me to break down all the news, of course, is a couple of important folks. But before that, let's set out the signal. News team, assemble! Spearheading the discussion today is my good mate, Sixties. How you doing, big fella? Mate, I don't think I can keep up with what's going on in the NRL. <laughs> it's, it's been an it's insane month. On. It just feels like there's no way they could top it next week, and then they just go out and top it. So, yeah, a lot of... So many hold my beer moments. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a lot of hold my beer stuff going on. And uh, joining us to break that all down is our insider in the industry, Spiro. How you doing, mate? Going well, guys. Keeping busy and uh, the footy news is rolling in. As 60s mentioned, it's busy. We're only a couple of weeks away from finals now, which is very, very the, exciting. The finals so are an afterthought right now, though. There is just so much happening on and off the field that it feels like, yeah, there's a race for the top four, you know, and there's a race for the top eight, and but it's all secondary to what's happening in the NRL elsewhere. It's, uh, yeah, bizarre times. Absolutely. Really is. But I, I really want to dig into what's been happening for uh, Spiro lately because I don't know how much sleep he's been able to get because he's been involved in covering the Commonwealth Games and presenting reports on uh, 2GB. Mate, uh, how'd you enjoy that? It was a great experience, guys. Something which I've always sort of dreamed about and, and aspired to do at, since a young kid, you know, covering such a big sporting event like the Commonwealth Games, Olympics. And to be given that chance at the age of 19 is a huge honour. And I was very, very lucky and blessed to to get the chance to do it. And I love watching those events anyway. You know, I probably would have been waking up at odd hours to watch some of the events over in Birmingham. But to be able to cover it, present reports and, and uh, you know, be part of something bigger than just watching it yourself is such a great experience. I absolutely loved it. It was amazing. Mate, a couple of uh, – I, I do have some questions I want to ask you. Um, I, mm-hmm. I want to give you one without any notice. Yep. What, um, what – before you went uh, – before you started covering it, what was your favourite sport that you were looking forward to cover? And then conversely, coming out of it, what was your favourite sport after the Games, if there is a difference? It's an interesting question, and I'd probably say swimming would have been the one that I was looking forward to the most. There was a lot of hype. It's always something which I enjoy watching, especially at the Olympics level. But I feel like because of how successful the Aussies were, it lost a little bit of that sort of excitement factor because we were doing well, we were winning medals, and we were doing it easily. So I thought swimming was going to be the best, probably didn't live up to the hype, um, but it was still fantastic. I loved it. And the one sport which I would probably say which I didn't think I'd enjoy as much as I really got into was the diving. And I've got a friend of mine who is in the Australian diving team who I went to school with, Sam Fricker. And obviously, I had a bit of an vested interest, but I took a real interest in generally the team and the Aussies. They did so well, and there were so many good storylines out of that diving team. Really small world, Spiro. 
they Let's are say that again. The, that particular family were good customers of ours at the family shop. So it's a, is that right? <laughs> yeah, no, no joke. Yeah, it's a, uh, so we, we got all the updates from his mum during his, uh, his pursuit for Tokyo and the Commonwealth. So yeah, crazy times. Wow, there you go. Yeah, so um, small world, isn't it? So <laughs> so I know Sam. I went to school with him. We're good mates, and um, I was sort of invested in his performance. But as I said, the diving team, you just the awe. You, you're in awe of the brilliance, what they do and the, the magnitude of those dives and how beautiful it looks and how they do it so well. So the diving 60s was probably the sport coming out of it, which I didn't think I'd enjoy as much, but I enjoyed more than expected. I'm usually in awe of the rowing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the pun there. I'm in awe of the rowing. Sorry. <laughs> oh, well done. <laughs> it took me a while there, but... Uh... Good one. It's actually the rowing's not a Commonwealth sport. Surprisingly, it used to be a Commonwealth sport, but it isn't anymore. Yeah, I know. It's. I was thinking about should I go there with the pun because it wasn't part of the Commonwealth Games, and I thought I can't resist. I've got to. I've got to. I've got to add a bit of corn to the to the. <laughs> this uh, podcast before we get into some of the serious stuff that we're going to be talking about. How did how did the Australian performance compare to Brilliant. games? Very, very well. As you would have seen, we topped the medal tally, 67 golds. I think it was just uh, below the amount that we had at the Gold Coast four years ago. I think we had about 80, so they were a little bit down on that. But considering it was an overseas games and backing up from an, a, an Olympics last year, you had world champs just before the Quam Games in a multitude of sports, swimming, diving, and track and field. Considering all of that, we did exceptionally well. There were so many standout performances. And we actually won our 1,000th Commonwealth Games gold medal as a country. We're the first nation to achieve that, and it's a huge achievement, and it just shows that we are dominant when it comes to the Commonwealth. And there was a lot of talk, or there always is a lot of talk, about who's the better sporting nation, England or Australia. And I think this settles the debate. We, we smashed them. They had a, the home advantage, but they still couldn't win more gold than us. So the Aussies were just exceptional the whole 11 days, winning plenty of goals. I think there was one day that we... We didn't win gold. Out of all 11, on one occasion, we didn't win any gold, but every other day we did. So, yeah, it was a it was a spectacular performance and a lot to be proud of from an Aussie point of view. Mate, if I was to get you to narrow it down to your favourite moment, what would that be? Mm. Favourite moment for me, and it was hard. I, I nailed it down to my top three for wide water sports with Mark Levy last night. But my favourite moment came in the men's 1500 metres final. You guys probably would have seen this with the Aussie Ollie Hall winning gold. Now, he's 25 from Sydney. I went to, He was at the same school as me, a few years older. So once again, had a little bit of a vested interest in his performance. But it, it, looking at that race unbiased, it was just such a magnificent event because heading into the final 100 metres, he was in fourth. He wasn't even in medal contention, but he stormed home strong, overtook a couple of world champions on the way. And Bruce McAvaney, who was calling the action for Channel 7, summed it up perfectly. He said, this is the stuff of legends. The last 100 metres of an event is the stuff of legends. And that's exactly what it was because the way that he came home, in an event which the Aussies don't usually dominate in, the last Australian to win the event was Herb Elliott more than 60 years ago. So a big achievement for Ollie Hall. I know a bit of his backstory as well because he left Australia after finishing high school to go to the US to focus on his running. And that's paid huge dividends because he's got an advantage over other runners that might not have had that experience. And post-race as well, what I thought was absolutely lovely was he paid tribute to his grandfather, Sergeant Fred Hall, who passed away 
only a couple of days or weeks before the games got underway. Now, he was a World War II veteran, heavily invested in Ollie's career, used to attend all of his junior meets. And Ollie said post-race that he did it for him. He knew he was watching and he was going to have a glass of red to pay tribute for uh, to him. So that was a moment for me. You know, an event that we weren't meant to win, an event that the Aussies haven't won in so long. And then for Ollie Horse, someone that I have a bit of a, a link to, I know his family, for him to win that race, win gold, and the emotion on his face post-race was just unbelievable. So that was the moment of the game for me, guys. And it was just a, a spectacular couple of weeks. It, it, I did watch that event live, and I must admit that when he was locked in behind the other runners and running fourth, I thought he'll do well to get out and get a medal here. And mm. uh, and, and I couldn't believe it when he started to surge and, and such a late surge too that he was able to make. You, you mentioned before uh, about... Uh, maybe being a little bit unexpected. W- was that the most unexpected result from the games uh, in, in, from your perspective? I think it probably was, to be honest, guys, because Oli did really well at the Tokyo Olympics last year, qualified for the final, finished, I think, about sixth or seventh. Last month at the World Champs, he actually bombed out a little bit. He, he, there was a lot of expectation coming into the World Champs that he would do well and win a medal, but he missed out. So heading into these Com games, we didn't really know what to expect from him. And for him to come out and win gold and, and beat those world champs and the way that, that he won that event, you'd have to say that was probably the event which uh, we weren't meant to win that we did. The swimming, as I said, we were meant to do well. We won a lot of events. We won a lot of gold medals. Uh, you know, the netball, we were sort of the favorites, us in England. Um, the cricket, we were the favorites. The, the hockey, we were the favorites. So when you look at it, that was probably the, the event which we weren't meant to win that we did. So just spectacular, absolutely spectacular. So moving now from the Commonwealth Games, which you said was such a, an amazing event for you to be able to be involved in the coverage, uh, we've had some significant football results for the Eels, a, a great game against uh, Manly. What was your take on that, uh, on that Eels performance against Manly? Before I dive into that one, when you look at the last five matches, we've won four of the last five. Now, that's a big thing. I don't think it's been spoken about enough, but when you think about it, we beat uh, the Tigers, the Warriors. We lost that game in between to the Broncos, which was terrible, and then we beat the Panthers and Manly. So we're, we're four out of five. We're building some nice form towards the back end of the year, which we haven't done in a long time. And that game against Manly was a real test, right? Because no Mitch Moses... Uh, going too manly, we haven't won there in a number of years. Off the back of you know a little bit of criticism aimed at Jake Arthur, didn't know how he'd perform. And off the back of Manly, who had a lot of pressure as well, off the back of the Jersey saga, with all those players returning, they were probably favoured heading into that game. They were probably the team which uh, they were, I think they were paying, paying better than Parramatta to win. So to come out and perform that, like we did was... Admirable, and it, it's a real sign of what's to come and how we're building into the back end of the year really nicely. But the part which I was impressed by the most was we really stuck in there for 80 minutes, and Manly they were in that game in that second half, they were really in it, and they were probably looking like they were going to win. But Parramatta really put the foot on the accelerator, they took they stood up, they took the game into their own hands, and got the win. And it's rare that you see that because I feel like. Para play well when we're in front by a lot, but 
in this game, we were behind. You know, Manly, they scored the first try of the second half, but we we bounced back and really um, dominated towards the back end there. So I was impressed by the effort on the whole, showing a real sign and a strength of character in our in our side. So really happy with that performance. Yeah, the, to withstand that surge that Manly had at the start of the second half, and then when we wrestled back momentum, we just, as you said, we put the foot on the accelerator from that point onwards. It was uh, uh, a bit of killer instinct that was that was shown there. How did you how did you see the performance of our spine? Brilliant, brilliant, and credit to Jake Arthur because for someone that hasn't actually started in the halves all year, he came off the bench I think against the Cowboys, and he's come off the bench a number of occasions um, apart from that. He did really well. And I just think he did his job. He didn't overplay his hand. He didn't complicate things. He just did his job. He fed the ball to Dylan Brown, let him do a lot of the work, let Clint Gutherson do a lot of the kicking. And I think it worked perfectly. I think Gutho probably played one of his games of the year, his efforts across the park. His kicking game was brilliant. Micah Sevo as well. I know he's not part of the spine, but a, a huge shout out to Micah because he has had an excellent few games and that was a brilliant performance against Manly. And I think Dylan Brown also stepped up. A, a lovely try for him and playing with a lot of confidence. Reid Marnie, I just think, was was solid. But Gutho and and, uh, and Dylan Brown, two guys that had to step up with no Mitch Moses, they did it and they did it well. And Jake Arthur did his job perfectly. Yeah, I, I was also impressed with Sean Lane. Uh, he, I, I gave Dylan Brown my three and Sean Lane my two. Uh, I've talked about this with with Sean Lane, the way that he's playing at the moment, he he creates uncertainty for the def- for uh, opposition defences on that left hand side because he's now attracting the attention of the defence. What's what's going to happen with Lane? Is he about to is he about to hit the line on a on a, a particular angled run? And, like, is he going to pose a threat with the run that he makes? Is he going to pose a threat with an offload? And then if the attention starts focusing on him, that opens up the opportunity to get Sivo into uh, maybe a one-on-one situation because with defenders worrying about Lane, it opens up a bit of space for Sivo. So they can either go uh, to Lane, they could maybe go out the back to... Uh, Gutho or to uh, Tom Opechik, or they can just throw the cutout straight out to uh, Mike Acevo. It just makes it a lot more unpredictable, and we're not having to rely on the old sweep or block plays to be able to create something in attack on that left-hand side. I agree, 60s, and I don't think we've seen that left-hand combination form as well as it has this year since 2019 when Sean Lane and Micah were first at the club. And it's lethal, and it is just fantastic to see. Sean Lane probably having one of his best seasons in the blue and gold. A heap of triases. He ran for almost 200 metres on Friday night, 80 post-contact metres and two line break assists. So you've got to, yeah, he's probably one of the standouts in the forward pack, and I've been really impressed by what I've seen from him. Now, there is a change to the Eels team this week. We have... Makahesi Makatoa uh, has lost his spot on the bench to offer Hickey Ogden. What's your what's your take on that? I'm really excited, guys, because I've seen offer Hickey Ogden in the past. He brings a, a huge presence on the field with his size, and I think that's what we need heading into the final few games of the regular season. Coming up against the South, 
South opposition who we're usually not too strong against, having someone like Ofehiki Ogden that can come on and bring the impact is going to be huge. And Makahisi Makatoa has been great for us off the bench, but I think we need to change things up a little bit and see uh, how Ogden goes there. You've watched him. You've seen him in reserve grade, so you're probably more informed to give a judgment on his form this year. But I'm really excited to see what he can bring against South. And it's, it's a game which we find hard usually, but having someone you know big that can come through and, and bring that impact, I think will make a big difference on Friday night. I think you've probably nailed it in that BAs must be looking for a little bit more impact off the bench. We've spoken about how his bench rotation has worked and the the emphasis that's that's put on the minutes that have to be played by uh, Junior and Reg. And maybe it might be that he's, uh, if he can get the, the sort of impact that he's looking for from Ogden, that it might change up maybe not so much the minutes that the uh, our starting props play, but maybe just that uh, how it rotates through the game. So it will be interesting. Um, just before we get on to some signings that have happened and some of the other stuff around in the uh, NRL, uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about the importance of this game coming up uh, against South. How, how are you seeing this uh, Friday night's match? Our history against the Bunnies isn't good at all. I mean, the last, I think, four or five games that we've played them, we have lost. And even at Combank, we don't have the best record against them. We had that finals game a couple of years where we lost. So, uh, look, it is concerning. It is a danger game. They're our bogey team. We really struggle to beat the Bunnies. But this Friday night is a huge opportunity for Parramatta to prove that they can go deep into the final series and they can really step up against a South team that have been really good the last month and beat them. So, I'm nervous. I'm a little bit concerned. When you look at the lineup, I think we've got a great team on paper. Our bench is probably the most dangerous that it's looked all year. This is the perfect combination. Having Offa Hickey Ogden, Bryce Cartwright, Oregon Kafusi, Murata Niakore, that's a dangerous bench. And I think that's where we might edge South out because you look at their bench, they've got Taff, Mark Nichols, Salivi uh, Havili, and Davey Moali. So they haven't got as much strength on their bench compared to us. That might be what sets us apart and helps get us over the line on Friday night. But it's a danger game. We need this win. It's important for our confidence, of course, but it's also important for our reputation amongst the competition to really prove that we are a threat and a team to be reckoned with come the back end of the year. One of the interesting things that I saw was a quick interview with uh, Ilias for South, and he spoke to the unpredictability of Parramatta. And, and he literally, he, he was literally saying, it depends which Parramatta turns up. And, um, and it's strange to hear that from an opposition team to acknowledge that there's a, there's a Parramatta team that could turn up that we'll, we'll get an easy win against. Or there could be one that will really challenge us. Given the last two weeks how we've played, we are playing a really dangerous attacking style of football and an unpredictable style of football. And that's, I think we're getting back to our, our DNA, our identity, what we've, you know, our style of football over the last few years, playing a real free-flowing style and an unpredictable style. And opposition teams dread that. When we, when we come out and play a really, really predictable style of footy, we get rolled, right? And we've done that against South in the past. But if we can play like we have in the last two weeks, this Friday night, 
we give ourselves a really good chance of getting the win. So, yeah, it's it's interesting that Lockie said that. And given the way we've played the last few weeks, he has probably seen some of those matches and, and noticed that, gee, Parramatta are playing a real free-flowing attacking style of footy and we need to be prepared and ready for that because when they bring that to the footy field, they're a hard team to beat. Uh, and, and look, I think every Parramatta supporter acknowledges that this is a huge ask for Parramatta because at full strength with Mitch Moses, we've still been hammered by South in recent years. And uh, we're, we're now uh, playing with a, a 19-year-old half instead of Mitch Moses. And I, I have confidence that Jake will, will again do his job. But as I said, even at full strength, we haven't been able to get close to South. So if we can manufacture a win, man, that's that's going to say something about Parramatta's headspace moving forward. Now, um, just there's plenty. Of, oh, we've got to get on to the rest of the NRL because there's plenty of stuff going on. We've just had Sam Verrill's sign for the Titans. And I know he's someone that you had really hoped that Parramatta might have had a crack at. For sure. I've always liked his style of footy. And when you look at the way he plays compared to Reid Marnie, they are a little bit similar. And Verrills, I mean, he's a premiership winner. He's had a tough run with injuries the last few years. However, I think that he's someone that we should have tried to sign because as good as Josh Hodgson will be, the experience that he brings as a veteran of the game, I feel that Verrills is a better long-term option. And he's, I know he's injury-prone as well, but he's probably the best man to fill the void that Reid Marnie will create when he leaves at the end of this year. So I'm a little bit disappointed. I think it's a great pickup for the Gold Coast Titans. It's important that, that they've got someone there in their spine that will be a team, someone that you can build the team around. You've got Kieran Foran at six. I don't know what he's going to bring, but having Verrill at nine is going to make a massive difference to the Gold Coast uh, side. They had Aaron Booth who copped that season-ending injury last week against Melbourne, but Verrills is a great asset to the Gold Coast, and it's a shame that we didn't sign him. Now, um, uh, Forty, what's what's your take on um, on Ver- the Verrills situation with yeah. him going to? Ver- Verrills is interesting because I think in a vacuum, uh, it would have made sense for Parramatta to sign him, but given that we've got Hodgson on the books for next year, it feels like Josh Hodgson with extra steps because they've both got that same you know torrid injury history. Obviously, Hodgson's far older and. You know, a bit more rundown because of it, but he also brings more experience. So, yeah, Verrills is one of those ones. If in in a different set of circumstances, I would have been happy for the Eels to take a flyer on him. Uh, but at the same time, I think given that the Gold Coast Titans are involved, I think the sort of money you'd be talking about isn't you know lottery ticket money. It's significant investment money. So I don't know. It's 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 an interesting dilemma. But I think that you know between uh, Hodgson and then even internally, we're, we're starting to see Brennan Hands take some steps forwards. I think that. Uh, you know, perhaps the Eels probably may be better equipped at dummy half than uh, initially expected for next year. Uh, now, the big news, of course, Ricky Stewart, the first coach suspended as a result of uh, comments made after a game. Yeah, not not and breaking I, and I guess, drug codes or anything like that, like uh, Flanagan. In, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, quite, quite extraordinary. What... What's your take on uh, what's transpired, Spiro? I think to be short and sweet about it, because I know you guys have a lot to add, I think the NRL have handled this perfectly and it's the best move because 
that sort of language and, and behavior after a game is unwarranted. And Ricky can have whatever views he wants. And I'm not saying that he, he shouldn't, uh, you know, he sh- he's, he's allowed to have whatever view of players he wants. But to come out in a press conference and publicly shame someone and uh, put the boot in them like he did was extremely inappropriate and not on. And I'm glad the NRL have really sent a strong message to the rest of the competition, uh, stamping it out and saying, this is not on, this is not what we stand for. And I think they've done it well. Fine him, ban him. He's banned for a week. And they have come down very, very hard on him because he's not allowed to uh, contact anyone from the team, coach them remotely or anything like that. So it's a very, very harsh penalty, but it's the right penalty. This is interesting because it caused a big stir on NRL 360, which I suppose is the premier sort of daily discussion panel when it comes to the NRL because they thought half the panel thought it was okay, half the panel thought it was unfair that a coach gets banned for a game because and the fact that you can't attend the game at all because players when they're suspended are allowed in the coaching box. And I thought that was a bit of a false equivalency because the damage done to a team when a player is suspended is because that player cannot play. That is their value to the club. Whereas the value a coach has is obviously not when it comes to the on field stuff directly. It's the you know the actual coaching and teaching and management that they have, which is why you have to ban them from the venue and from coaching for a week. So in that regard, I'm, I'm completely okay with the punishment. Um, I mean, I know there were certain aspects of the media. I think Andrew Voss was on radio saying that uh, it should be the rest of the season. Maybe I might be misquoting that, but I think he was pretty uh, stringent on how long he wanted it to be because he thought that Ricky was well and truly out of pocket with those comments. Um, I, I'm okay. I mean, if it had been suspended for two games, three games, I wouldn't have been upset either because I think he was pretty, pretty far out of pocket. Uh, the only issue I've got is that we know that, you know, Stewart's been in the game for a long time and so he's got, you know, connections and friendships in the media and we saw that with Paul Kent's, you know, vigorous defence of him on 360. But what annoyed me about that was the whole, I know the inside story and if you knew the inside story, you'd think differently. I feel like that in this sort of situation when Ricky's come out and put a kid on blast, you either reveal what you know, that being Ricky and and Kent, or you don't, you don't talk about it like that because the whole I know something you don't know sort of thing is really, it's just contrived for me. Either spill the beans and, and put all your cards on the table so we have a, a you know clear and uh, open dialogue and understanding of what happened that an 11 or 12-year-old kid could have done that was so egregious that you would hold a grudge for 12 years or you move on and copy punishment and don't, you know, don't do the I know something you don't know. <laughs> you know what? <clears throat> it's almost like that narrative that Paul Kent went down seems to fit in with almost what uh, Ricky Stewart started off with because Ricky Stewart, has, his blast was a character assassination which said nothing about what his grief was, um, what his gripe was with Salmon, nor should he, he have... He, you know, he shouldn't shouldn't have even started with that, let alone reveal what his gripe was. But then secondly, and that was such a childish rant to have, really. Uh, and it fitted in, because again, because it was about the actions of a child. Right? He's, he's having, as a 55-year-old man, he's having a shot about something that a, another player did as a child. So, and then, as as you've just said, 40, Kent's come in with the, I know something you don't know. That That's like a kid's reaction yeah. to something. Put, put all the cards it's on the sure. table. If, if what he did back then was so bad and so egregious that Ricky Stewart warranted having a 12-year-long 12 12 year grudge, then put it on the table, let the public decide whether it was fair, 
and then that way you can vindicate what you know we're not ever going to fully vindicate you know putting a kid on blast in the post-match press conference but at least we get the context it just it's it's always frustrating this isn't the only case that happens in in rugby league and beyond it happens all the time when you know there's inside knowledge and but i'm not going to tell you and if, but if you knew, you'd understand what I'm, I'm talking about. It's like, well, then do not bring it up. Let us judge what we know in the context of what we know. And, you know, yeah. and don't, don't, because so, so often when you do eventually find out about those things, it's nothing. And then, but sometimes it is something significant. So I just hate when people lord that over you. It's like, okay, we'll put the cards on the table, lay down the there. Let's see what we got. Yeah. Look, it's, it's all about innuendo, this sort of thing. And the thing is that, that people are trying to put two and two together. Like I, I, I just didn't want the whole thing raised for a start. I, I, um, I personally, I don't care what a, a what Jamin Salmon said as a twelve-year-old because people grow up. If he's if he's said something that's awful, if if he's been a bully or a tormentor or whatever the case may be, and and again, this is all this is all. Complete hypothetical speculation, right? Yeah, hypothetical speculation based on the sort of innuendo that that, that Kent is throwing out there. And mind you, in throwing out innuendo like that, to me, he is continuing the personal assassination of Jamin Salmon. And and I think that aspect should be looked into because he's he's continuing the the attack and, and saying if people knew if people knew this the public opinion would quickly sway in uh to back ricky stewart i mean what is that saying isn't that actually saying that uh, continuing the character assassination of jamin salmon and then to have a shot at the nrl for not being able to corroborate because they only investigated for a short period of time he obviously he wanted a bigger investigation for the NRL to investigate the actions of someone as a twelve-year-old. What do you mean detention? God damn it! Oh, but well, the, this, know, this, like, this is what this is coming back to what I was. Yeah, this is what comes to what I was saying. Sixties. If you're so confident that that narrative will hold up to scrutiny, put your cards on the table, flip them over, let the public, you know, uh, evaluate what he did as a twelve-year-old, and what like why it was justifiable to carry this grudge for 12 years and then put him on blast and in, in, in completely um, and this is the other thing is that they'll complain that it's an unprecedented punishment for a coach what Ricky Stewart has done was unprecedented in the context of not just NRL but almost Australian sports how many times have you seen a coach come out and completely put a player on blast not for just on-field actions but for character assassination like that so this I, is- I, I can't believe I can't believe it that there are people in the media who are who are defending it i i just i'm i'm just stunned look i understand mateship and i understand people standing by their mate and that's a that's a you know that's a a noble quality to stand by your friend and and not to see them um suffer uh consequences that you don't think are uh a fair but this was this was straightforward, indefensible, what he's come out with. And as I said, just the the level of character assassination that's going on is beyond the pale. And, um, yeah, I, I I just think the that that level of um, uh, attack where, you, where, as you said, you were going down the I know something you don't know path, uh, I was I was ready to... Well, I was actually, I said this to you before we started recording. 
I was turning 360 off and it was only uh, Yoko insisted that we keep watching it. And and for people who know that uh, the level of interest that uh, my other half has in rugby league... Yeah, it, wa- it wavers between barely interested to please do not watch that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she's... Uh, she she comes along to the games with me and even even has has come along to uh watch the lower grades and uh and even the odd bit of training very odd bit of training but she has and and that comes out of being a partner but i was turning the i was turning the 360 off and she insisted on continuing watching it uh that's the level of frustration that i had and with so much going on in the nrl yeah, I have a great interest in watching the programs and seeing people's takes, but I just thought I, I couldn't believe that we were going down that path. And the cynical part of me looks at what he said and thinks that he deliberately went out of pocket because the facts are that Canberra at home in a borderline must-win game against you know the premiership favourites, but without both their starting halves and without their star back rower, the Raiders absolutely shit the bed. And And they had the first Simbin goal against the Panthers too. This was literally on a tee, butted up to win the game and, and push into the top eight, and they completely shit the bed. So that's the cynical part of me saying that, you know, he's there to try and deflect blame or, uh, when it comes to the actual game itself. So, you know, who knows? And then finally, I think uh, one of the more amusing comments that came out of this was a, a self-deprecating Canberra fan on the uh, on the web somewhere pointed out that if the NRL really wanted to punish Canberra, they would have let Ricky coach for the rest of the year, given how the Raiders are traveling right now. So, but, uh, uh, Spiro, just, uh, just your take on, um, mm. on the Ricky's capacity to deflect attention. I mean, I, I doubt that that's when given the punishment that's been handed down, maybe it's a bit of a stretch to say that's what he's done in this, instance is to come out with something that deflects attention off the off the team's performance but um it, was there much floating around out there in in media land where maybe people thought he was he was looking to deflect attention from the raiders performance oh uh, of course I, at the end of the day i think yeah he was obviously trying to deflect but he just went about it in the totally wrong the worst way possible to come out and publicly slam and shame a player is just Unbelievable, and it's something that we haven't really seen before. And and it's um and as you guys touched on, you know, the defense, like you know, you stick by your mates. But at the end of the day, this is not on. It doesn't matter what the backstory is. You don't come out and publicly slam a player like that when you know, as you guys said, they're not revealing all their cards. They're not telling the tr- real story. And I think regardless of if we knew the real story or not, everyone would agree on the fact that this type of language, behaviour and attitude after a loss and to, towards any player is just absolutely disgusting and not on. So I, I, I don't think there's any questions asked that what he's done is incorrect, it's, it's wrong, it's not on in our game. And, yeah, he's try, he was trying to deflect attention, no doubt about that. But, you know, he went about it in the wrong way and it's, it's just unbelievable. And you know what, I, I, I'm going to commend the NRL on this because they basically said it doesn't matter what the circumstances were it's it's something that you shouldn't have done um the one match or the one week suspension i don't have a problem with that because i think it's a starting point and just like with the fines that the fines can escalate or or suspensions can escalate um if if this proves um well 
Ricky has a track record of having uh, uh, fines from comments. He's now got a suspension from a comment. It's a signal to him. You know, if you keep going down this path, there might be something even more significant coming your way. Um, we've also now had the uh, feud between the Storm and the Panthers. Yeah, Brandy What's your take on that, mate? Oh, man. It, uh, the, the narrative continues between these two sides. Look, I'm really looking forward to Thursday night because it's going to be an absolute cracker game. It's a shame it's on a Thursday because I just feel like they, they'll still get a good crowd, but there's not as much hype around Thursday night games as other games you know, in different time slots. So a little bit disappointed about that. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we saw last year during the final series what happened there um, where the Melbourne players were shown a video and all this sort of stuff. I, I don't know. At the end of the day, it's a really good rivalry. And it's, um, for me, I'm just keen to see these two sides get out on the park and play footy. And you might see a little bit of, of, um, of flares boiling over. But for me, I, I just love the, the contest and love the, the rivalry between these two sides. It's built and, and it'll be a, a fantastic, fantastic game. And very important for Melbourne because if they can't win this game, then... Parramatta's hopes of a top four berth uh, do continue and do increase in likelihood of occurring. Do you think uh, when it's something like this is initiated that it gives extra motivation to the players? I mean, are the are the Storm players now motivated by uh, Brandy's claims? And, and and by the way, I don't necessarily disagree with uh, Brandy Alexander's claims on um, neither do I. On- on the origins of some of these tackling techniques. I agree. I agree with Brandy and, and I, I'm with you 60s on that. And it would, it would probably the storm players. They've got a way down there. They've got a culture where they know how to motivate players and get players up for big games. And I'm sure that they're going to be using that as a part of their motivation for Thursday night and Penrith. They're going to show up They're without, I know they're without their, their halves and, and it's going to be tough for them, but I still think at home they'll be too strong. And Melbourne, they'll put up a good fight. I reckon they will. You know, Craig Bellamy in the club will talk about these comments during the week and help uh, motivate players pre-game with that. And I think it will. It'll it'll help the Storm lift to another level, but Penrith are going to be too strong in my eyes. Well, as a Parramatta supporter, this might just be one of those rare times <laughs> that I'm backing the Panthers to, to beat someone, that I'll be cheering them on uh, because – there could be some implications for the top four. So you, we've, you've just been speaking about the injuries that are there, um, the suspensions that are going on in the game as well. With all of these injuries, suspensions, the the um, the feuding, the the chaos that's going on, is that how how much is that likely to affect the the top four or the top eight, or or especially with the top eight? Is that even is that clear enough now that we could call a top eight? Uh, what's what's your take on uh, how the final series is looking? So for me, in terms of I'll start with what you said about is the top eight locked and loaded. Pretty much the only spot up for grabs is eighth. You know, it, it comes down to the Roosters whether they can continue their good form into the back end of the regular season. They got the Cowboys this week, which will be a challenge. And you've got Canberra who are playing St. George. So that's the only spot where I, there may be a little bit of movement. For and against-wise, the Roosters are way ahead. They've got 107-plus and Raiders uh, minus 33. So 
I, that's the only possibility. But I think largely, I think that top eight will be the top eight. Uh, there may be some movement in terms of Parramatta might go up to fourth, Melbourne come down to fifth, what and whatnot, because they are quite tight um, points wise. In terms of whether suspensions and injuries and whatnot are actually going to is going to influence the top eight much, I don't think so. I think Penrith is still a very very hard team to beat. They've got great depth. They've got a quality team across the park and yes they they are without their halves which is tough but they are still putting good performances up each week. Parramatta showed that even without Mitch Moses they can still put good performances up. Melbourne they're sort of back to full strength they got no Pappenhausen still but I think Melbourne they've got a a full strength team at the right time of the year and you look at Cronulla and, and the Cowboys the Cowboys welcome back Jordan McLean this week which will be a big addition to their side but I don't think it impacts much because at the end of the day, you've got the quality eight teams, the best eight teams in the competition that are there. They've played good all year and they are quality teams. And the reason they are quality teams is they play well even when they're not at full strength and without their star players like Penrith did on Saturday night. It'll be a test against the Storm. It'll be a tough game for them. But I think at home, given their depth, they've got a, a you know, apart from their halves, they've pretty much got a full strength side. They should get the win. And I don't think that has a huge, you know, impact on how the top eight will finish up. You know what? Just reflecting on something that you said about the performance through the year, I believe if we were to get a team that's not currently in the top eight make the top eight, I half believe that it's they're not deserving of the spot because I I agree with you. I think the teams that are currently in the top eight are the best teams in the competition this year. And if if it is now affected by injury or suspension and that, um, you know, someone gets a bit of a run because of that, it, yeah, I don't think it's reflective of, uh, of what the season's been like. Now, as far as Parramatta's concerned, our destiny's in our own hands. If, if Parramatta wins their uh, last four games they make the top four. It's as simple as that because with matches against South, the Broncos and the Storm, they would consolidate being in a top four spot. And it's results between the other teams which determine how high up in the top four that the Eels finish. But they cannot miss out on the top four if they win every match. It's as simple as that. That's huge. You know, that's huge. But... At the end of the day, for me, it is a very, very tough run home because you've got the Bulldogs, who we struggled against early this year. They're in great form, and that's a danger game because you lose that that match makes things difficult. The the round 25 game, Paravi Storm Thursday night at Combank, that will determine, in my view, who finishes fourth and who finishes fifth. So that is the one. Circle it. I think I, I, I've got a lot of hope and, and um, belief in Parramatta to win their last couple, but... You drop this week against South Bogey team, you lose next week against the Bulldogs, and then you sort of settle for fifth or sixth. But this is a test, this week especially. We need to step up. We need to prove ourselves because every game matters. And, you know, I think it'll come down to the last match against the Storm, but we need to win the three games leading into that if we want to be a chance of making the top four. Oh, mate, we want a, we want a big win in that one. That'll be our, uh, our last live podcast appearance at Paraleagues after the game. Uh, it'll be a big one to be able to celebrate a, a win and hopefully a top four placing in that. Now, let's let's just finish with a little bit of Parramatta and, and talk about the latest news that's come out about Isaiah Papali'i. 
it's interesting. It's very, very interesting because we knew from a couple of weeks ago that he was considering back flipping on the deal with the West Tigers and staying at Parramatta. The latest news is that he wants to return home to New Zealand and he may return to the Warriors, the club where he played before coming to Parramatta, which is very interesting. In my view, I think that he wants to stay at Parramatta and this Warriors thing is just a bit of a, you know, a, a clickbait headline grabber. But it'll be interesting to see how this pans out. When you look at things, Warriors sitting in 14th and Tigers 15th. Does he really want to go to a club sitting down the bottom of the ladder? I don't think so. He's a quality player. He wants to win a premiership. And the way that he's going to do that is by staying with Parramatta. I'd love to see him stay. I think he's an important part of our team and our DNA. Losing so many forwards. You've got Oregon out the door. You've got Ray Stone leaving the club. You've got Reid Marnie leaving. Marata Niakore. A lot of forwards. And to have someone like Isaiah stay on is very, very important just to keep things stable in our forward pack heading into next year. So I'd love to see him stay. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out. I don't think that he'll be going to the Warriors. I think he will either agree to his contract with the Tigers and go there or he'll stay at Parramatta. Now, the latest news in the last little while is that Clint Newton, the CEO of the Rugby League Players Association, has come out and said that he has spoken with Isaiah Papali'i and his management and has told them to honour the contract with the West Tigers. So that's the advice. Will Isaiah follow it? I don't know. I think he'll stay at Parramatta and we'll see him in the blue and gold in season 2023. It's, I mean, look, obviously this is beneficial to the Parramatta Eels if he backflips. But I do find it rather amusing that the RLPA has finally decided to come out and take a stand on this just in time for this particular contract. Like obviously not a conspiracy (laughs) against Parramatta. It's just that there's been years of garbage on both sides, club and player. Uh, obviously, look at the West Tigers. They literally just forced their coach out of a contract. Uh, you know, both both parties, any given club, take advantage of contract or the loose contractual laws in the NRL. Uh, so one way or another, I think the NRL needs to sort this out. Either contracts are ironclad or we go down the path where contracts are not ironclad. Players and, co- uh, players and clubs have more wiggle room to uh, terminate them or, or move on from them earlier, but at some sort of opportunity cost to, you know, other parties, whether it's, uh, you got to pay out a transfer fee to another club, or you got to do something because right now, the the way the NRL is with with clubs being so bad in certain aspects. I mean, look at the West Tigers, obviously, and you know on the flip side, other clubs being ruthless in the pursuit of a premiership. Uh, there's just too much on on both sides of the ledger, and I think we need to figure out a way. Like I said, if we make them ironclad and everyone has to honour everything, or we get on the path of you know make it make more transfers available easier for both player and club management and, you know, embrace that because right now it's just that they're sort of picking and choosing, like all, all parties, all parties. This is, you know, RLPA, NRL, clubs, players. Everyone sort of picks and chooses when a contract is important. Yeah, and look, I'm going to give my take on this, on the latest, that the, throwing the Warriors into the mix. We had the stance... Uh, that was suggested by, I think it was David Riccio, that, number one, Ice wants to stay at Parramatta and that, uh, that secondly, it would be in the Tigers' best interest to just say to him, look, stay and we'll, and, and, and we'll sort out what we're going to do with that contract money now because the indication from ICE was that he would talk to the Tigers about the situation when the season was over. And the longer that that drags on, 
the tougher it gets for the Tigers to spend that sort of coin on uh, another significant investment uh, in, in terms of their playing staff. So the way that I am seeing this latest suggestion about going home to the Warriors is this. Ice doesn't want to go to the Tigers. He wants to stay at Parramatta. Being able to get out of the West Tigers contract to stay at Parramatta might be problematic. Going home to New Zealand is something that might fly as a way of backing out of a contract. Therefore, compassionate grounds, he's letting the Tigers know, if I can't stay at the Eels, then I will pursue compassionate grounds to go to the Warriors. In other words, I believe that that stance forces the West Tigers' hand just a little bit. Like, if they know this bloke's going to keep fighting against being with us and that he will go as far as to return home to New Zealand to not come to the um, to the club, we're better off just to sort it out now and to, and to get on with it uh, with finding another player. That's my stance on it because, um, like you, Spiro, I, I don't believe that it's... Um, something that he would want to go back and return to the Warriors. Um, But it might be his way of getting what he wants from the West Tigers, which is not having to honour the contract. And if they realise that he's prepared to do even that and that he might have a fair chance of, of getting that, then, you know, maybe that's... That's a message to them that they they're best to move on. And and I mean, once again, it might be a little bit nebulous to argue it, but there is also the you know the thought of did the West when when and when I signed with the West Tigers, Michael Maguire, the incumbent New Zealand coach, was the coach of the West Tigers, and then they then went on to sack him and changed the not not just a small change, but made a wholesale change to the the circumstances in which Azai had agreed to join the club. So how much is the burden responsibility on the Tigers fall then if they're going to uh, – it's, it's not failing to honour, but uh, alter the environment in which, I, as I agreed, to join the West Tigers. And that goes for every club that would change a coach because, once again, this is – as much as players getting out of their contracts is an issue, clubs sacking coaches ahead of contracts is also an issue. So, like I said, this is an issue that the RLPA, the NRL, clubs and players all need to start figuring out one way or the other how they want it to be. Do we want contracts to be ironclad? Or do we want a bit of wiggle room uh, with opportunity cost for all parties? Yeah, look, I think I think we are at that stage where it has to be sorted. Now, whether that means that there are standard clauses that player agents and clubs and uh, players are able to come to an agreement on where it's like I am signing with the understanding that blah, blah, will be the coach. I mean, I don't know whether that is an option that, that players put in there as, as a clause in that when they sign with the club. Um, I don't, you, I guess you'd almost think that with certain clubs that change coaches regularly, maybe that is something that you'd want your agent to put in there. But maybe, maybe we're getting to the stage where that sort of stuff needs to be standard. Um, 
or the NRL gets to the stage where it's where it puts in it doesn't it matters little who the coach is you know some sort of clause where I acknowledge that the the club may change coaches between now because and one when of I the... and I and I sign the sign this contract with a full understanding and the intention to honour the contract. One of the most know? fascinating things to come out of the uh, 360 discussion you were hinting at before 60s wasn't so much Ricky. I thought it was Anasta, who was in a very similar boat to Ice, where he'd signed with the West Tigers, and this, this was completely coincidental in terms of the club, but this isn't a shit on West Tigers segment. But he'd signed with the West Tigers back at the uh, sort of mid to twilight point of his career uh, on the provision that Tim Sheens was a coach, and obviously they went in a different direction uh, at that juncture once he'd signed. Uh, they'd moved Tim Sheens on, and and that's the sort of reflected in how he regrets not being more forcible about you know getting out of that contract because he'd signed on on the provision that Sheens, who was you know an institution in the game at that point, uh, was a coach and would benefit his rep career, and yep. you know uh, this it's almost similar in the, in the extent that uh, Madge, as much as you know he struggled as the coach of the Tigers, is the New Zealand coach, which you know in terms of Isaiah Papali, there is not a more important representative coach. So yeah, it's like I said. I just want the game as as an entirety, as the the NRL managing body, as players, as RL players, as clubs, to figure out how they want contracts to be. Because you know, not just the ice situation. There, there is plenty of you know stupid shit going on elsewhere. Like we said, Michael Maguire has been given the result. A whole stack of coaches being cut ahead of their contract durations. And you know, there's players. I mean, look at the West Tigers themselves. There's talks that their back rower, uh, the one that was going to Manly, uh, what's his name. The uh, young young boy plays on the edge for him, but he wants to uh, back out of his contract with Manly. So you know, it's just there's a whole lot of it going around right now. Yeah, so uh, maybe it is at that stage where there needs to be uh, things that are worked out that are added into standard NRL contracts that make it either yeah, exactly. clear when you can you can or cannot or, or cannot. Yeah, and if we are going to go down the ro- the route of like being more fluid of contracts. You know, if clubs are going to lose players, then maybe there needs to be an opportunity cost for it to transfer fee or something like that. And then flip side, if players are going to be able to be cuttable, then, you know, we've got to talk about certain guarantees maybe for them. Because, you know, if they get cut out of a contract and cannot find employment elsewhere, then that's going to be an issue. Yeah, so, um, yeah, interesting times, uh, but for a different reason in this in this instance. So, um, mate, what a what a full news episode we've just had. <laughs> Unbelievable! They get bigger and bigger each each week. Don't <laughs> the, they? the NRL's not helping, mate. They keep putting out all the oh, drama, man. all the content. You know, sometimes you just want to have a good news week. You know, oh, that was a nice signing by the Gold Coast <laughs> Titans, and uh, you know, looking forward to uh, Parramatta getting this player back from injury. But no, we are <laughs> we we getting more and more drama. There's beefs between clubs and the Panthers and the and the Storm, and you've got huge issues of coaches putting players on blast and. Uh, there's probably stuff that we haven't talked about that happened this week that just because in any other week it'd be, you know, significant news, but it's just overshadowed by what's happening right now. Was there any refereeing controversies? I mean, <laughs> if there was, I can't remember. I can't I'm, trying, remember I'm just trying to think. Because the I feel like Graham Annesley's Monday morning debriefer was pretty short this week. He had a couple he focused on a couple of points from our game about the uh the no symbian for Will Penaseni because the way that played out and Will didn't drag the player down and it was shielded off the ball. Um, maybe there was a drama, I can't remember. Uh, I mean, there were the high shots this week, I suppose, that we didn't really talk about. There was some you know, nasty high contact that led the players getting simbined. And, uh, there was a Brendan Smith um, oh, yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the hip, uh, drop. hip drop 
Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think aside from that, it's, it was a pretty okay week on the field. I mean, there was some reasonable football. Obviously, our game was a cracker. But, yeah. You know what mm. we've just you know what we've just set up, don't you? We've just set up the one all that, the how. Yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing we haven't touched on, uh, but we will obviously once it gets to the full swing, but the uh, proper 2022 season of the NRLW, not the one that was postponed yeah, from yes. last year, but it, it's just around the corner. I was I was actually going to pop that into my list for discussion today because I am super excited about NRLW season kicking off next Saturday. First game of the 2022 season, Parramatta v. the Roosters at Combank just before we play the Bulldogs. Make sure you get out to that game and a lot to talk about. And next week we'll do a bit of a preview. I've got my eye on a couple of the players there. I've got a bit of background, done a bit of research. So looking forward to dissecting it. I think it's going to be a fantastic season. Some good recruits for Parramatta, especially some youngsters coming through the ranks. So we will dissect that next week and I'm pumped uh, to see how we go in this 2022 season. Well, I'll I'll just let you in on the fact that uh, I went and watched the uh, NRLW have an opposed session, Parramatta's NRLW, Mm. have an opposed session against the flag team, uh, which was was, uh, most interesting to watch. I am going to put together a pre-season training report this week for the uh, Eels NRLW. I'll be doing a little bit more to be able to uh, get that out to you but uh yeah that was the first step was was going and uh and watching that and had a had a bit of a chat to some of the staff i've got some takes that i will share uh in the report about some players um a little bit of a spoiler uh gail broughton just remember that name oh yeah because she could just be something right out of the bag absolutely just, I, I just, I all I'll say is I, I came away from the opposed session, and uh, there was a couple of other names that I was mentioning, but I was certainly mentioning her name um, to people. Um, just yeah, uh, super super impressive, and I've I've gone and watched a few of her highlights that are on YouTube from her, her time in uh, rugby and. Uh, the the All Black system and uh, yeah, it, 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 she is going to be. I think she's going to set the NRL NRL W alight this season. So yes, yeah, some NRL Parramatta's NRL W content coming your way on TCT. It'll be there um, uh, before this weekend, and also as Spiro mentioned, we'll we'll really dive deep into it next week on the podcast. Looking forward to that. Really looking forward to it. It'll be great. Yes, indeed. And as always, thanks for stopping by and giving us a listen on a very, very busy news week. So I hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you guys in the preview podcast. And of course, live at Jack's Bar and Grill in the post game against the South Sydney Rabbitohs. Go you wheels. Let's go, Para.